0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Please enjoy this encore performance and stay tuned for a personal message. For everything that makes people different across the world, there is something that makes us the same. This is called a cultural universal. Cultural universals include things like gender roles, jokes, death rituals, and mythology. It's in that last cultural universal where we make our home today. We're talking about a particular type of being that crops up everywhere. The shapeshifter. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. A cursed man who turns into a bloodthirsty beast under the full moon. The word werewolf comes from the Old English, were for man and wolf for wolf. d d players and Underworld fans, please resist the urge to correct this to lycanthrope because they're actually two different things. It has a parallel etymology from lycanthropus in the Greek for wolf and human but it originally applied not to supernatural beasties, but to people who thought they were supernatural beasties, according to the physician Galen. When people these days present with anamorph delusions, they may be diagnosed with clinical lycanthropy. Lycanthropes can transform at will, and they have a more specific origin story than werewolves as an institution do. In Greek mythology, Lycone was the king of Arcadia, who got it in his head that Zeus was not as omniscient as people believed and that he was just the right guy to prove it. In the most popular version of the myth, Lycone held a ceremony and feast to honor Zeus, and Zeus showed up. The main dish on the table was the roasted flesh of Lycone's own son, Nyctimus. the scheme being that Zeus would eat Nyctimus, thinking it was pork, thus proving he wasn't all-knowing. Turns out he was. Rather than kill Lycone outright, Zeus turned him into a wolf and resurrected the prince who then ascended to the throne. But enough about werewolves and lycanthropes. There are half a dozen underworld films if you need more of that. And even though there are many different werewolf legends in many different cultures, we're going to do our best to stay out of Europe and away from wolves today. As usual, much easier said than done. Let's spin the globe around and see where to stop. And stop. Ooh, Brazil. The home of the Boto Encantado, the dolphin shapeshifter of Amazon River folklore. During the day, the Boto Encantado cavorts in the Amazon, living its best pink dolphin life. If you've never seen pictures of a pink river dolphin, there's a link in the show notes. Their sort of Mother Nature meets Lisa Frank. At night, though, the Boto transforms into a handsome young man who seduces girls, gets them pregnant, and then pops back to his river come morning. You will see this pattern of behavior repeatedly today. The Boto Encantado loves a party. They can't resist inviting themselves. So if you're having a get together in the Amazon River basin, keep a close eye on your single girlfriends because it's really hard to serve a dolphin with a paternity suit. You should be okay if your party is indoors, though. Boto Encantados may look human, but they have a distinct tell. They retain their blowholes on the back of their heads, and will always wear a hat to hide it. Asking that handsome stranger to take his hat off inside may be the only way to reveal the Boto Encantado. They were renowned for being charming, to the point that partygoers will beg them to stay even as morning encroaches and the Bodo Encantado needs to get back to the water. And they aren't one-trick dolphins, either. They have the power to control storms and can transform humans into Encantados themselves, or afflict them with disease or insanity. Most people who live near the Amazon won't go near it between dusk and dawn, or won't go in the water alone during the daytime, because Encantados are fond of abducting humans they fall in love with, the children born of their dalliances, or just anybody near the river who looks like they'd be good company. Kidnapping is a common theme in folklore in general, and among shapeshifters in particular. But sometimes it's the shapeshifter that gets kidnapped. In the waters around the Orkney Islands off the northeast coast of Scotland, seals are a regular sight. Their meat, blubber, and hides Have been important resources for the Orcadians for centuries. But you must be careful which one you hunt, because you never know who is a seal and who is a Selkie. Selkies have the power to turn into humans, and beautiful ones at that, who like to dance under the moon or just bask in the sun. There's no consensus among storytellers as to why, how, or when Selkies transform. Maybe it's Midsummer's Eve, maybe every ninth night. What is commonly told is that the Selkie doesn't just change from one shape to another, like Mystique or Odo. They take off their skins, and the skins are the thing. Selkies need them to be able to return to their natural seal form. If their skin is lost, or more likely stolen, the Selkie is doomed to remain in the human form until the skin can be recovered. With a liability like that, silkies try to steer clear of humans. Most of the time. A silky man in human form is a handsome creature, with an almost magically seductive sway over mortal women, and they're not shy about using it. They'll take off their skins, tuck them away somewhere secret, and head inland to seek out, quote, unsatisfied women. Human women can slip into the Selkie's DMs, too. But she must go to the sea at high tide and shed seven tears into the water, and the Selkie will come. Should a young woman of a seaside village go missing while out on the water, people will say that her Selkie lover had come to collect her. Selkie men don't have the market cornered on interspecies romance, though. Selkie women are said to be irresistible. That's probably why there are so many stories that follow the same format. A young man sees a beautiful selkie in her human form, and either by trickery or theft, gets a hold of her seal skin. Trapped on land, unable to return home, the selkie has no choice but to marry the man. Remember, this is mythology wherein, like fairy stories, very little agency for female characters. After some years and some children... Someone accidentally tips off the selkie on where her skin is, and she's finally able to free herself. In some versions, she takes her children with her. In others, she runs back to the sea as fast as she can. That's the version of the story used in the movie The Secret of Roan Inish, which you must see if you haven't. It is a near-perfect movie if you like listening to storytellers. You get so invested in the story that the character is telling that when it goes back to the main plot, you're like, oh yeah, the movie. A similar fate befalls the Italian dove girl, the Croatian she-wolf, the buffalo maidens in Algeria. In East Asia, the shirts and skin stories tend to involve birds, like the Russian swan maiden and the Japanese crane wife, wherein a man marries a woman who is in fact a crane disguised as a human. To make money for the family, the crane woman plucks her own feathers and, to weave silk brocade which the man sells. But she becomes increasingly ill from doing it. When the man discovers the truth of his wife's illness and therefore her identity, she flees. She is a tengu, a shapeshifter ubiquitous to Japanese folklore, that are seen as protectors of the mountains and forests they live in. Just as with the selkies, there are different versions of the story where a young man finds the swan maiden's magical robe of feathers and she stuck marrying him. And later, one of their children accidentally reveals what's happened. For the young men listening, this is not good relationship advice. Don't steal women's clothing to get their attention, magical or otherwise. Speaking of storytelling, you know I've got a book out, right? Of course you do. Because a lot of great folks have been leaving reviews for it. But I haven't been seeing all of them and I wish to extend a special thanks to the listener who tipped me off to this. Anna Kay let me know that I was missing reviews that have been left in other parts of the world, so I changed the domain suffix on Amazon so I could check it out, and here is one from the UK, from Dale Taylor, who said, First off, I'm a big fan of the Your Brain on Facts podcast. Give it a listen if you haven't already. Moxie is a mine of information, some of which you didn't know, and some that you thought you knew but didn't. Everything is always diligently researched, and presented in an intelligent, fun way, with a good bit of humor mixed in. The book follows the same path, and it's a fascinating read, and packed with so much stuff that it will stand being reread, or, alternatively, you can just dip into whatever section interests you. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Thank you, Dale, for that review, and thank you again, Anna, for bringing this to my attention. Over on the podcast review side of things, we've got two from Podchaser, which remembers like the IMDB of podcasts, and a good place to leave reviews if your podcast listening app doesn't have that function, or like me, they added it and you can't be bothered to check it out. The wise and learned Weather Girls S says... This podcast is guaranteed to interest you. Such a wide variety of topics delivered in a voice that is like melted butter. Moxie's pop culture references make even what could be mundane more fun. After listening once, you will definitely find yourself wanting more. I always add episodes of this podcast to my queue. The best boredom breaker out there. Thank you so much for that, Weather Girl S. And T-Rex Scott says, Moxie is such an amazing host, who beautifully explains all kinds of facts that you had no idea that you needed to know. This podcast is well-produced with great content. This is the only podcast I support on Patreon. And I thank you doubly for that, T-Rex Scott. And of course, if you wanted to support the show financially, you can go to patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts, or if you prefer a one-time donation, there is a PayPal button on the website. But of course, the single best way to support your favorite podcast is to tell people about it, whether that is one-on-one or sharing something that we post on social media. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Your Brain on Facts and Twitter at Brain on Facts Pod. And on the topic of being social, don't forget we have a subreddit and a Facebook group, both of which you can reach through yourbrainonfacts.com slash social and are a great place to share cool things you find on the internet. And if you were listening to the story about the Selkie and thinking, man, I could do with some new skin myself, maybe a wipe-off t-shirt is right up your alley. I've just put a couple new designs up at yourbrainonfacts.com slash merch, which ports you over to our TeePublic page, and some of the designs actually turned out the way I envisioned them in my head. Will wonders never cease. Japan is also home to one of the best-known of the Eastern shapeshifters, the Kitsune which means both magical fox spirit and regular old chicken-stealing fox. Fox spirits who transform themselves into women aren't exclusive to the land of the rising sun. They can also be found in China, where the myth originated as Huli Jing, and Korea as Kuhimo. Traditionally, fox spirits are tricksters who shapeshift into beautiful women to seduce men, sometimes to drain their life energy to become immortal, sometimes just for the lols. A man might find himself falling in love at first sight with a gorgeous stranger, abandon his family to be with her, only to discover she's a kitsune. The fact that they retain their fox tail when in human form is usually what gives them away. And when he returns home, it hasn't been a few days or weeks, but many, many years. In Japan and China... The fox spirit is a spirit to begin with, but in Korea, the Kohimo begin life as normal foxes, who gain power as they grow older. They also gain tails, one for every hundred years that they live, which is no mean feat considering a red fox is lucky to make it to five years old. The maximum number of tails seems to be nine, no matter how old the kitsune is. And of course it is the origin of the Pokemon Nine Tails. For a lot more information on kitsunes, I cannot recommend, highly enough, the YouTube channel Linfamy. Link in the show notes. Many Selkie and Kitsune stories see the mythical beast have children with a human, but the children don't seem to be special in any way besides that. Luckily, Hawaiian legend ties up that loose end. A beautiful young woman named Kali would bathe in the sea under the light of the moon. One night, she caught the eye of Kamohoali'i, the king of all sharks. He was so enamored of her that he transformed himself into a human and searched the valleys of the big island for her. They fell in love, got married, and lived happily until Kali became pregnant. Before the baby was to be born, the shark king knew he had to return to the sea. I am sure the timing was just a coincidence. And he ordered Kali to to give birth alone and to never allow the baby to eat the flesh of any animal. The baby, Nanayui, was born as beautiful as his mother, except for a gaping hole on his back, like the mouth of a fish. Kali kept her word not to let Nanayui eat meat, but eventually he grew to the age where he would eat with the men rather than the women. And of course, the men gave him meat. This triggered in Nanayui a ravenous hunger, and the fish mouth on his back grew razor sharp teeth. His first taste of meat also awoke in him the ability to change shape, and his mother watched in sad horror as he turned into a shark and swam around in the stream, eating everything in sight. It wasn't long before Nanayui was grown and swimming in the ocean, and people started to go missing. One day, the villagers discovered the great mouth on Nanayue's back and put two and two together. They went after Nanayue, but he changed into a shark and swam to the island of Maui. There, he took the form of a man and got married, but he couldn't suppress his lust for human flesh. He must have been in a real state, because when his resolve finally broke, he changed shape and ate a girl in full view of several people. They tried to spear Nana from their canoes, but he swam away to Molokai. Act 3 of the story is basically Act 2 all over again, except this time, the people on Molokai were able to catch Shark Nana Yue in their nets and kill him. Thus died Nana Yue, son of Kamahualii, king of the sharks.
1: I'm Jane Perlez
0: If you're looking for an immersive escape, look no further than the sponsor for today's show, the City of Ghosts podcast. City of Ghosts is an audio drama about wealth, corruption, entrenched power, and the ghosts of New York City. It's a supernatural neo-noir thriller starring Bridget Lundy Payne of Netflix's Atypical, as a misanthropic information broker who makes her living buying and selling the dirty secrets of the city's elite. With themes like personal identity, immigration, city corruption, mental health, queer characters, and the hidden pasts that define us all. City of Ghosts is made with and by a diverse team and features immersive cinematic sound design and a lush score. And the best part is City of Ghosts is starting now. You can get in on the ground floor. No worry about getting lost if you jump in in media race or trying to go back to Episode 1 and catch up. Episode 1's happening right now. Look up City of Ghosts on your favorite podcast player or go to cityofghostspodcast.com. Hey, so can we talk for a minute Come sit by the fire while I dump out my purse. You might have noticed, you really couldn't have missed it, there hasn't been a lot of Wiboff happening lately. The reason for that, as some of my long-time listeners, I can't believe people have been listening this long, as some know, I have a chronic idiopathic pulmonary condition. Idiopathic means we don't know what the hell it is. We being myself, three pulmonologists, two cardiologists, endocrinology a full GI workup, even saw a Johns Hopkins doctor who had no idea what I was dealing with. And stumping a Johns Hopkins doctor isn't as cool as it sounds. So it's kicked up again, and it does this. This could last for an hour, a day, a week, six weeks, like now. The trouble is, I do voiceovers for a living. The irony is not lost on me. And I got into voiceover... After the onset of this mystery condition, because it's what I want to do, and when COVID hit, it was damn jolly well time to get out of retail, especially because retail employees aren't allowed to protect themselves by requiring people to wear masks. Hey, managers, protect your employees from your customers. So doing voiceover requires my lungs, and then there's no lungs left over for the podcast, since VO pays the bills. For those who like things quantified, as I do, for the past week, for example, I've been able to record for about two minutes, and then I need to stop for five. I can repeat that cycle for up to 30 minutes, but then I have to lie down for 30 minutes at least. So work gets done really, really, really slowly. It's especially complicating because I just took on the largest job by word count that I've ever done. This is a great time for me to mention the amazing support from the members at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. This is not a call-to-action pivot. I just want to bring special attention to these folks, and I want to thank all the new members and all the people who, without prompting, just from the goodness of their soul, and including one person who's already in the utmost tier, raised their support amount. Thank you so much for that. So a big thanks to folks like David N., Taylor M., Eric P., Sharon M., O.J., and someone calling themselves Ms. Fragile Left, which I hope is facetious, but you do you, boo. So what's the bottom line here for the podcast going forward? Well, I'm not giving up on it. 160-odd episodes in, I'm not going to bail now. I just can't always do it. I've also become increasingly reluctant to rerun the old episodes, because I go back and listen, and I just can't stand the way they sound. It's probably much worse for me than normal people, because my ears have become increasingly attuned to vocal and sound qualities. Just as my husband, who every evening watching TV next to me, has to constantly hear things like, he needs a windscreen, he's too close to his mic, that was a separate session... The poor dear can't get a moment's peace from it. So I will do my utmost to get new episodes made, but if there isn't one that week, it's not because I didn't want to. I'm not saying this to pity whore, get sympathy, get attention, fish for compliments, anything like that. I always feel so awkward when that reaction comes in. I just wanted you to know what's going on with the show, which means what's going on with my lungs, because what's going on with my lungs is what's going on with the show. And I appreciate everyone sticking with me through this inconsistent schedule. I know it's not good for the algorithms and stuff like that, but I don't care about algorithms. I care about you enjoying the show. And I'm sorry the show isn't here as much as it should be for you to enjoy. I am doing my best to take care of myself, though it's hard when you have these mercurial, changing, shifting symptoms and no continuity of care. I don't even know who to see at this point. So please, be patient, stick with me, spread the word on social media, whether you see me post or not. And hey, if you know a good diagnostician within, say, a three-hour drive of Richmond, Virginia, shoot me their number. We now return you to your regularly scheduled program already in progress. On the mainland, there stalks a creature so fearful that people don't like to speak of it. They like it even less when outsiders do it because we tend to twist their belief system into cheap movie monsters. The Navajo call them yi na With it, he goes on all fours. We call them skinwalkers. In the Navajo culture, a skinwalker is a type of harmful witch who has the ability to turn into, possess, or disguise themselves as an animal. The Navajo believe there are places where the powers of both good and evil are present and that those powers can be harnessed for either. Medicine men use these powers to heal, while others seek to use the power for harm, often using human corpses in their magic. Becoming a skinwalker comes at a high price. They must kill a close family member, usually a sibling. Typically male, these witches walk amongst the unsuspecting tribe during the day and secretly transform under the cover of night. Most often, they are seen in the form of coyotes, wolves, cougars, bears, and foxes, but can take the shape of any animal. They then wear the skins of the animal they transform into, hence the name skinwalker. Sometimes they also wore the animal's skull or antlers on top of their head, which brought them even more power. They choose what animal they turn into depending on the abilities they need, such as speed, stealth, or just teeth and claws. Because of this, the Navajo consider it taboo for its members to wear the pelt of any predatory animal. You can tell if an animal is a skinwalker on all fours by looking into their eyes, which will still look human, but you do so at your own peril. Locking eyes with a skinwalker can let them take possession of your body. They can bring illness and death, control over animals, and even reanimate the dead. The Skinwalker kills out of greed, anger, envy, or spite. It also robs graves for personal wealth, and to collect much-needed ingredients for black magic. These witches live on the unexpired lives of their victims, and they must continually kill to replenish themselves. Those who have talked of their encounters with these evil beings describe a number of ways to know a skinwalker is near. They might make noises around houses, like tapping on windows or banging on walls. People still report seeing skinwalkers in modern times, often on the roads, trying to make them crash their cars. In another example of a cultural universal, skinwalkers and other witches are blamed for hardship and misfortune. This was most apparent with the Navajo Witch Purge of 1878, which rose out of a real tragedy. After a series of wars against the U.S. Army, the Navajo were expelled from their land and forced to march to Fort Sumner in New Mexico, in what became known as the Long Walk of the Navajo in 1864. There, the people suffered bad water, failed crops, illness, and death, reducing their numbers dramatically. Many of the tribe's members were said to have turned to shape-shifting and black magic to escape the terrible conditions. And can you blame them? The rest of the tribe were convinced that their gods had deserted them. After about four years, the government admitted it had made a mistake, a surprising change, and the Navajo were allowed to return to their homeland. Back home, the conditions improved, but they believed the skinwalkers were still among them, and the accusations and hunting began. The situation came to a head when someone found a collection of witch artifacts wrapped in a copy of the Treaty of 1868. Forty Navajo people suspected of being witches were killed in order to restore harmony and balance to the tribe. Skinwalkers don't plague the Navajo exclusively. The neighboring Ute believe they have been cursed with skinwalkers by the Navajo, At one time, the Ute and Navajo fought together against their common enemies. However, later, when the Ute acquired horses from the Spanish, they began to abduct the Navajo and sell them into slavery. Later, during the Civil War, some Ute joined forces with Kit Carson in the military campaign against the Navajo. This is what ended in the Long Walk. After the Navajo returned home, skinwalkers began to attack the Ute, in repayment for their betrayal. I know I said we would stay out of Europe as much as possible, but a little bit of Europe has come to us. Welcome Ben and Barry from The Worst Foot Forward to tell us about a shapeshifter I find particularly interesting. Thanks, Moxie, and
1: hello, mighty fans of your Brain on Facts. I hope by the end of my contribution, your own hippocampus will have shapeshifted subtly into an organ with just a few more facts about my favourite arboreal shapeshifter. Now, when I think of shapeshifters, I tend to imagine Odo from Star Trek, werewolves, or that kid at school who could seamlessly hang out with any social group but you never saw in any class... Or my high school was haunted. So, I wanted to go off-piste and introduce you to a lesser-spotted shapeshifter. I headed to Slavic mythology, a dependably bizarre and otherworldly pantheon which I can best describe as like Norse mythology if it had been filtered through Nick Cave's brain. Amongst the Slavic gods is a deity called Leshi, literally, he from the forest. The Leshy sometimes referred to as a tree spirit, and on other occasions, a demon god, and some folklore even suggests that his origins may come from humanity itself. At his heart, Leshy is a protector of the forest, the grassland, and all the creatures within it. While commonly adopting a masculine, humanoid shape, because even shapeshifters are bound by the patriarchy, Leshy is able to assume any likeness and can change in size and height, making him the only overtly telescopic deity. There is no account if when he does so, he bellows, Go go, leshy legs! Now, in some tales, he's as tall as a mountain when he's in the forest, but shrinks to the size of a blade of grass when he steps outside it. Uh, In others, he's very tall when far away, but reduces to the size of a mushroom when he's nearby. Proof that chroniclers of Slavic mythology are amazed, delighted, and bewildered by the notion of perspective. His default setting is that of an extremely wizened old man, covered from head to foot with long, tangled green hair, He has stars for eyes, and as he walks, he causes the wind to blow. His skin is as rough as the bark of a tree, and because his blood is blue, his skin is tinged with that colour. And this is quite creepy, friends. His eyebrows, eyelashes, and right ear are all missing, and he wears his shoes on the wrong feet and doesn't cast a shadow. He's seldom seen And that wouldn't surprise you for a beast that seems like a cross between an ent and Bigfoot, but he's often heard whistling, laughing and singing among trees or marshes, which I think we can all agree is both delightful and sinister at the same time, perfectly summing up the atmosphere of forests. They're smashing for a Sunday afternoon stroll, but if you end up in them after dark, a bear is going to disembowel you and wear you as a new waistcoat. Now, As protector of the forests and marshes, Leshy is sometimes portrayed with horns or surrounded by packs of wolves and bears. And it will be unsurprised to know that like many mythological creatures, he has quite the opaque moral code. He's known by some to have a propensity for leading travellers astray and abducting children, but his disposition towards humans is more dependent on the attitudes and behaviours of an individual or indeed the local population to a forest. If you're kind to the Leshy... Then Leshy will give you gifts. In folktales, cattle attended for poor peasants and princes are guided on their quests to find the correct princess. But Leshy is prone to abducting babies who've not been baptised or children who enter the forest to pick berries or fish. My favourite thing about him, though, is that he has been known to drop into a wayside tavern for a visit, drink a bucket of vodka, and then lead his pack of wolves staggering back into the forest. Now, should you find yourself in a forest in Eastern Europe and be worried that you have displeased a leshy, here's what you need to do. You need to make them laugh. Apparently the best way to do that is to take off all your clothes, put them on backwards and switch your shoes to the wrong feet. I suppose when you're a wolf hammered on cheap vodka, sub vaudevillian slapstick is about your level. At its heart, Leshy is a shapeshifter relating not just to the size of nature, but also its rhythms. Leshy spends the winter in hibernation, then awakens in springtime to run amok through the woods, yelling and screaming and seducing any woman they find. In summertime, they're more playful, trickster-like gods who rarely harm human beings, but in the autumn, they become more quarrelsome, wanting to fight and frighten off creatures and humans alike. At the end of the year, when the leaves drop off the trees leshy disappear back into hibernation. I think they're a marvellous interpretation of the natural world, part satire, part father time, part will-o'-the-wisp, part drunken hobo king, and all quite mesmerising. If you enjoyed listening to me fall down a leshy rabbit hole, you might like to tune into my podcast, Worst Foot Forward, an encyclopedia of heroic failure. Along with my co-host, Barry, each week we uncover the world's worst something. From pirate to astronaut, pro wrestler to mythological creature, we find the best of the worst in everything. We're available on Spotify, iTunes, and all your podcast places. Back to what I hope is Moxie and not a shapeshifter sidling into her podcast empire to take it over. Thanks for listening, guys. Thanks, guys.
0: Around the Horn of Africa, which is Ethiopia, Somalia, Sudan, parents warn their children not to talk to strangers, not to wander away from the lights of the house at night, and to be wary if they think they hear someone calling their name in the darkness. Where you have wolves, you fear werewolves. Where you have hyenas, you fear werehyenas. That is, of course, the English term used to lump a broad group of foreign concepts into one box. Where hyenas can be either human-born, or hyenas disguising themselves as human, transforming at will with the help of a magic stick or a sprinkling of ash, or being triggered by the smell of human flesh. Where hyenas hunt alone or in groups, but they always have an insatiable appetite and a reputation for luring people out of the safety of their homes. Elsewhere in Africa, the were hyena takes on slightly different properties. In Somalia, it transforms itself by rubbing itself with a magic stick at sundown. The Sudanese version is considerably more violent and is known for attacking lovers after dark. In Morocco, all were hyenas are believed to transform every night at sunset and return to human form at dawn. All these myths share a common thread. A fear of the other, and of nature's ability to disrupt life for those who don't respect her power. Hyenas and humans have had an adversarial relationship that dates back to the earliest human presence in Africa. For millennia, cackles of hyenas, for tis their collective noun, have sacked villages like slightly more hairy vikingers, killing livestock and even people. So naturally, this real threat got transmuted into the very concept of fear. Hyenas are also considered cowardly and repulsive for their incorrectly perceived nature as scavengers. One early myth originating from the Ivory Coast describes how the first hyena attempted to convince all the other animals to kill the first man and woman. Fortunately, first dog warned our ancestors foiling hyenas' plot and saving humanity. Growing out of that, the were hyena mythology centers the idea that they aren't just a threat, but a lowly, vile one at that. In some regions, this evolved into a means of isolating already marginalized people. In Ethiopian folklore, were hyenas were referred to as boda, a term synonymous with the evil eye, and connected via a strange twist on the Christian creation story with the lower uneducated artisan class and blacksmiths in particular for a time all blacksmiths in Ethiopia were believed to be bodas capable of wielding the power of the evil eye to transform into wear hyenas at will this belief still persists in some areas which is unfortunate for the tiny minority of Jews who have worked as blacksmiths for centuries. Also known as Beta Israel, the Jews of Ethiopia weren't allowed to own land or attend school. This left them professions such as blacksmithing, which require no formal education. Don Seaman, a scholar of religion at Emory University, believes that labeling the Jewish population of Ethiopia as Boda was a form of ideological segregation largely by drawing associations between boda and craft, creating a seamless mythic association, and inhibiting the social mobility that might have been possible in previous eras. Further dehumanizing them, legend had it that Jewish shapeshifters would rob tombs at night in hyena form to eat the dead bodies, and you could still smell a whiff of corpse about them when they changed back. Where hyenas' ties to the Jews of Ethiopia has greatly reduced with time, but not because of any particular enlightenment, but largely because most Ethiopian Jews were either forced to convert to Christianity or emigrated to Israel in the 1980s. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe.